Good morning, Southwest. Happy Friday. It's my pleasure uh, this morning to introduce a special speaker. Most of us are now familiar with Dr. Yuan's story from his testimony as we had the opportunity to hear and watch together on Monday. Dr. Christopher Yuan has taught, it, uh, taught the Bible at Moody Bible Institute for over 10 years, and his speaking ministry on faith and sexuality has reached five continents. He speaks at conferences, on college campuses, and in churches. He has co-authored with his mother their memoir, Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope, with over 100,000 copies sold and now in seven languages. He is also the author of Giving a Voice to the Voiceless. Christopher graduated from Moody Bible Institute in 2005, Wheaton College Graduate School in 2007, with a Master's of Arts in Biblical Exegesis, and received his Doctorate of Ministry in 2014 from Bethel Seminary. Dr. Yuan's newest book is Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, Sex, Desire, and Relationships, Shaped by God's Grand Story. Would you please join me in giving a warm Southwest welcome to Dr. Christopher Yuan. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for every good and perfect gift. Lord, we know that all good things come from you, and we praise you for that. Thank you that you are God and we are not. Help us, Lord, to recognize your goodness and the beauty of submitting to you. Father, we praise you, we thank you, and we ask this in the powerful name of Christ. Amen. For God so loved the world. That's a verse that I'm assuming we all know well. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Actually, I think that many non-Christians also know that verse or heard of that verse. For God so loved the world. You know, it's important for us to realize what it says and what it doesn't say. It does not say, for God only loved Christians, does it? It says, for God so loved the world. It also doesn't say, for God only loved those in opposite sex relationships. It says, for God so loved the world. And the way I take that to mean is that God loved the world. That means you and me. That means everyone you know who might not be a Christian, everyone you know who might be an atheist, agnostic. That means God loves Muslims. God loves those in the gay community. God loves the world. And that's an amazing truth. Love is a powerful thing. And so when people say love is love, that's a really powerful statement. But what does love mean? I think for some, it means one thing, and there's multiple definitions. I mean, how many in here love chocolate? Okay. When we say, I love chocolate, is that the same thing as when you love someone? I don't know, for some of you, that might be. 
Love can mean different things. I love, you fill in the blank. You know, I love soccer. Anyone love soccer? You know, I love, I don't know, you fill in the blank. Love doesn't always mean the same thing. In different contexts, it can mean different things. So when people say love is love, that's a powerful statement, but we need to think that through. What does that mean? Especially, what does that mean for Christians? Is not the greatest commandment, for God so loved the world, but I mean, uh, the greatest commandment that is we need to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. The second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. What's interesting in that great statement, those two great commandments, those two uses of love have nothing to do with marriage. Have you thought about that? It doesn't say marry God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And definitely does not mean marry your neighbor as yourself. That would be kind of weird. Love is a powerful thing, but we also need to realize love doesn't equal marriage. Love also doesn't equal sex. What God is talking about here, especially in these passages when it talks about sexual purity, is about sexual intimacy, not love. Love, as God prescribes it, unconditional love that actually is not dependent upon marriage. We all must love one another, but that definitely does not mean we should have sex with another. Please make note of that. We need to love our neighbor, not have sex with our neighbor. Love is a powerful, powerful thing. So when we realize this, that as great as marriage is and as good as marriage is, an institution that God has created since the beginning. The Bible begins with marriage, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and it ends with marriage in Revelation 20. And good, as good as marriage is, marriage does not have a monopoly on love. We can all love. And that can even be outside of the context of marriage. How, how many of you got, how many students here are married? Anyone? That would be, I don't think you should be married at this age in high school. So does that mean you've never experienced love before? Love is a powerful thing. Yes, we need to realize that we all are called to love and that's a powerful thing. However, when God talks about and when people say, well, love is love, amen. I agree to that. Love, we are all commanded to love. But that isn't dependent upon marriage, and, or, nor is it upon, dependent upon sex. So love your brother, love your sister. But that definitely does not mean then marry your brother or marry your sister or even have sex. How many of you guys know people or heard of people maybe, maybe they're sleeping around, maybe they're sleeping with their girlfriend or boyfriend, but they don't really love each other. How many of you guys know people that are having sex and they don't love each other? Anyone? Love does not equal sex. Actually, also, love doesn't also equal romance. There's a lot of people that are in love, 
You know, people that are in love. Oh, man, I'm in love. And you look at them, and you're like, you don't really love her at all. Love is a powerful thing, but we need to look, look at what is God's definition for love. I think a great thing to look at when we want to look at how God loves is Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. And in this passage, Paul says that God loves us. He sent his son, but he loves us while we were still weak. So it wasn't like, you know, you were getting yourself back together and, you know, you're, you're working it through and, and getting stronger. And No, you, while you were still weak, God loved us. Then two verses later it says, God loved us while we were still sinners. So not even that you were starting to get yourself, you know, stopping your sin and starting to follow God. And No, God loved us while we were still sinners. And then he goes on to say, God loves us while we were enemies. Can you imagine that? I mean, the person that hates you, and we're called to love, just as Jesus says we're called to love our enemies. Why? Because God loved us when we were enemies. If we're called to love, we're called to love others in the way that God loves. So are we called to love? Yes. We're called to love people even when they are sinners. And yet, Jesus tells the sinner that shows compassion but then tells the sinner, go and sin no more. So our call is ne never to condone sin, but to love them, point them to Christ, and pray that they would put their faith in Christ and then go and sin no more. But you might think, but, but I read the New Testament and I look at the words of Jesus. But Jesus said nothing about homosexuality. And so if Jesus said, never said anything about homosexuality, it isn't a big deal for him. And actually, he actually thinks it's, it's right. It's, it's good. But you know, we need to realize that silence is never an argument for or against. I mean, let's just say I finished my whole talk and I never say anything about killing puppies. Does that mean I'm for killing puppies? I don't know. Maybe it could be. Maybe not. Silence is never an argument for or against. Just because Jesus didn't say anything about nuclear bombs doesn't necessarily mean that he's for or against that. Jesus, just because Jesus didn't say anything about internet pornography doesn't necessarily mean that he's for or against it. Do you realize Jesus actually never said anything about incest? If you read through the four, four Gospels, never a word about incest. Actually, he also never says anything about bestiality. Did he? He didn't say anything about that. So does that mean that we should conclude that he's for incest? What do you think? These are kind of quite, quiet today. Are, are they normally quite like this? So tell me, is incest right or wrong? Because if you buy your silence, I'm assuming you think it's good. Oh, thank you. Good, you're awake. 
So let's all say together, incest is wrong, okay? Incest is wrong. Okay, good. I like engagement, so feel free. I mean, I know that, you know, usually, like when I speak to like African-American context, like there's engagement, right? Amen? Okay. So, but uh, I know like Caucasians, like our, our form of, you know, worship is, is like this, you know, but we can loose up a little bit. So incest is wrong, right? Your silence does not mean that you're approving. So incest is wrong. Thank you. I'm glad that we got that clear. How about bestiality? Jesus was silent on that. What do you think? Was, was bestiality right or wrong? wrong? Wrong. Good. Good. So we know that just because Jesus was silent doesn't mean that it is right. And even though Jesus didn't mention anything about this, actually, I think that there's strong argument for why he was silent about it. Let's kind of think this through. Why may Jesus have been silent on bestiality in first century Israel? So let's do some background context about first century Israel. In first century Israel, they were coming out of the exile. So they were, we call that post-exile. And so they had gone from kind of being sort of pagan and stuff and, 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 and sort of, you know, trying to integrate uh, secular uh, and idol worship, they had become pretty legalistic. As we see the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were very legalistic. Their heart wasn't really in it, but they were legalistic. So there was actually no question that bestiality was wrong. If you read all the rabbinic literature around the time of Jesus Christ, you will find that not a single rabbi actually thought that having sex with animals was okay. Or they weren't like sitting around in the little council saying, hmm, what do you think? Is this okay or not? It's wrong. And so therefore, it would kind of make sense that Jesus agreed by his silence. It was almost in agreement with that and saying that, yeah, I'm not going to reiterate something that is universally known. In the same way, incest was universally condemned by all the Hellenistic Jews in first century Israel. But what about same-sex relationships? In the same way, it was universally condemned by the, by the rabbis, by the Jews that lived during that day, that same-sex relationships was not blessed by God. So Jesus didn't need to reiterate what was already known and universally accepted. Actually, I think that his silence might have actually been, been for it and help us to show that he didn't need to. Because if he disagreed with everyone else, I think Jesus would have corrected them, like he did with the Sabbath, right? I mean, they had all these extra regulations and laws around the Sabbath, and he called them out on it because they were wrong. So Jesus' silence actually can point to why he was in alignment with the law in the Torah. But that doesn't mean that Jesus was silent on sexuality. So in Mark chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 19, these are parallel passages, Jesus was asked by the Pharisees about divorce. They asked, is it okay to divorce in any situation? And if you are familiar with what was going on at that time, there were discussions about whether divorce was right or wrong in some situations. There were, most of them said, yes, it is okay in some situations, but they were saying, well, then what, in what type of situations? 
Some rabbis actually thought that it was okay for a husband to divorce his wife if his wife burnt his meal. Other rabbis were like, no, 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 you can't do that. You can't divorce. The only situation that maybe you could divorce is if there is uh, infidelity in the marriage. So what they wanted to do was corner Jesus with this question and whatever answer Jesus gave, they would come back with a response because they were so they, they had been debating this for so long that they knew every single angle and they want to pull Jesus into this argument to talk about what the loss is, what Moses says here, what, what Leviticus or Deuteronomy says there. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, Jesus, knowing that they were trying to trap him, goes beyond all that. He's actually, he actually even goes beyond the law. How can you even go beyond the law, well, especially in the eyes of the Jews? The only thing that could be above the law was creation. And so Jesus goes back to Genesis. He doesn't go to Deuteronomy. He doesn't go to Leviticus. He goes to the very foundation of the law, which is creation. And he goes in the beginning. The creator made them. Anyone know this part? Made them what? Male and female. Anyone know what, where, that, where that comes from? Anyone guess what chapter of the Bible? Genesis 1. Good. What, what was it? What, Genesis 1? Good. Are, what year are you? Good. Give her a star. What's your name? There you go. Yes. You got, but like, I, I know more, more of you knew that. Good job. And you didn't have your Bible open and look at the footnotes? Good job. Genesis 127. Got some smart ones here. I'm impressed. So, Genesis 127. So now that we know, anyone know what that passage, well, well before I say that. So, uh, in the beginning, God made them male and female. So that's from Genesis 127. And then Jesus goes on and says, Therefore a man shall leave his uh, father and mother and cleave to his wife. Anyone know what passage that comes from? So not Genesis 1. Genesis 2, verse 24. So I'm not expecting you to know that. But Genesis 2, 24. What, and then Jesus adds, what God has put together, let man not separate. And so Jesus was tying the marriage in Genesis 2 with Genesis 1. And Genesis 1.27, God made them male and female. Anyone know what we call that one verse or what doctrine we come out of that one verse? The image of God. Genesis 1.27, in the beginning, God made, them, uh, God made them in his own image. In the image of God, God created him, meaning, meaning mankind. Male and female, he created them. So what's so interesting, and a lot of times we don't catch this. This is why reading the Bible in this context and connecting where we're getting these verses, Jesus was connecting marriage with the imago Dei, which is why this is so important. Because any, anything outside of marriage is not only against God's will, but is actually distorting the very image of God. That's why it's so important. Sexuality isn't just a trivial thing that we just all do in the privacy of our own, own homes. It involves God himself and his very image. 
So Jesus ties together in the beginning, created made the male and female, Genesis 127, and uh, the two shall become one. That's from Genesis 2.24. So, but what was the question that was being asked? What, what's the whole topic? Why did, that was the answer, but what was the question? What was the question about? I, I mentioned it just a few minutes ago. You guys remember? It was about divorce. Good. So they asked about divorce. Jesus, and, and they were expecting him to go to the law, but he doesn't. He goes to Genesis, to the creation account, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And so he basically said the two shall become one. What God has put together, let man not separate. Basically saying that, you know, divorce is wrong. If God put them together, then we shouldn't try to tear them apart. But if you think about it, all Jesus needed to do was to say, Genesis 2. The two shall become one. What God has put together, let man not separate. Why then did Jesus throw in this part of, from Genesis 1.27? And God made them male and female. Because if you think about it, that really doesn't help the argument for why divorce is wrong. Let me say it again. When Jesus says God made them male and female, that doesn't really add to the argument for why divorce was wrong. Well, some have said, who are, who are trying to advocate for gay relationships, some have said that Jesus was asked a question about divorce, and so therefore the context about this is only about divorce, and we can't say that it means anything else. So that comes from someone who's self-described himself as the leading uh, evangelical ethic uh, of the U.S., David Gushy, but... Um, it's kind of strange when you make yourself the leading person. Um, but he, he says that this context is about divorce, so we can't say that it's saying anything other than divorce. I mean, that kind of sounds logical, right? But if you think about it, whenever is Jesus constrained by the questioner? When... People ask Jesus a question. Is he only limited to the question they're asking? For example, should we pay taxes? You guys know that verse? Should we pay taxes? What does Jesus, how does Jesus respond? Do you remember that? Well, I mean, but the question was, or not the question, but the request was show me a coin, right? That, that was his first thing. And, what, what, what's, and then he asked the question, whose inscription, whose, and actually, this is kind of cool. I love, I mean, I could go off and I'll, I mean, but the, 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 what he says in, in Greek is icon, where we get icon. What's the image on this coin? And, and whose image was it? Caesar's. And then he says, give to Caesar's what is Caesar's, give to God's what is God's. So let's think that through. If the image of Caesar's on the coin, that means we give the coin to him, what has the image of God that we should give to God? There is a clear parallel there between the image of Caesar on the coin and the image of God that we are, we are created in the image of God. So what should we give to God then? A part of ourselves? All. Because the image of God is not something that we have. The image of God is not something that we're stamped onto. 
our whole person is created in the image of God, which is why even more powerful do we hear the part that Jesus is not created, obviously. He was never created. He always was. But also it doesn't say that Jesus is in the image of God. You know what Paul says? He says that Jesus is the image of God. But going back, so Jesus in that case... Oh, well, we can't say that, that Jesus is talking about that we need to give ourselves to God because Jesus is only asked a question about taxes. Jesus is never limited by the question. So when Jesus is asked about divorce, and often as he does, Jesus broadens the question out to be able to answer the most important question, either about the kingdom of God or about his death and resurrection, whatever it is. And in this situation, they were asking about divorce. And what Jesus was doing was saying, school is open. Let me give you a lesson. Actually, let me school you about divorce and marriage. And Jesus not only was saying that divorce is wrong, what God has put together, let man not separate, but he was also saying that in the beginning, creator made them man, male and female. So Jesus was now giving them not only a lesson on divorce, but giving them a lesson on marriage. And he was saying this, and this is powerful, that there is no marriage apart from male and female complementarity. There's no other way, there's no other way to understand why Jesus threw in I do not believe that Jesus wastes his breath and say things that are extraneous or irrelevant. Jesus was very particular and specific and intentional about talking about why divorce is wrong and what is the essence of marriage. That there is no marriage apart from male and female. So Jesus may not have said anything specifically about same-sex relationships, but he definitely spoke into sex, sexuality, and the only definition for marriage, male and female. But you might be thinking, well, you're talking about the Bible, and you're talking about, you know, what it was in the original language, but we just read the English. You know, all we have are English translations. Anyone taking Greek? Do you guys take, teach Greek or Hebrew or Latin? How about English? Yeah, are you guys? I don't speak English. I speak American. So you might think, I don't, I don't understand Greek. It's all Greek to me. You know, I, I, I don't study Hebrew. So we're dependent upon the translators. And you might have heard an argument like this where people say, you know, there was no word in the Bible for homosexuality. We, we added that in the early 1900s. How many of you guys have heard that argument before? We don't have a, a word for homosexuality. And they're exactly right. There, is, there was no word. I mean, early on the translations, we didn't use that word, and so we kind of created that word. And part of the reason is because the word homosexual... Anyone know what, around what time frame that word occurred? Not in the Bible, but just in, in language. Yes, who said that? 1800s? Good. So mid-1800s, you're exactly right. Early 1800s, it's, it's in the, by German psychiatrists, 
guys have some really bright kids here. I'm impressed. Usually other high schools that I speak, no, I won't, I won't say. So mid-1800s. And in the mid-1800s, we had these German psychiatrists who were recognizing that, you know, men would have sex with men or have relationships with men, women have relationships with women, and they didn't know what to call it, so they kind of created this word, homosexual, heterosexual. And then, as the word became more popularized, uh, Freud began, really made it more popular. He was a German psychiatrist as well. Uh, then it kind of came into the English language, and then the Bible, then it was in, it put in the RSV uh, in the early 1900s. So it's true that this word isn't found in the Bible. But it's actually irresponsible to say that the concept wasn't. Because actually, there are things, there are words in the Bible that we don't find. For example, the Trinity. Is Trinity found anywhere in the Bible? The word. Is the word Trinity found in the Bible? Yes or no? Anyone know? No. It's not found in the Bible. Anywhere. You can't find it. But is the concept of the Trinity found in the Bible? Yes, it better be. <laughs> so just because a word isn't found in the Bible doesn't mean that the concept isn't. So, I mean, this, this, this to, to know the difference actually shows a good understanding of interpretation. So when people say, oh, there's no word found in the Bible, and so then they don't talk about whether the concept, they, actually not showing and revealing uh, a very kind of... Uh, uh, minimal understanding of how we do interpretation. Interpretation, we, we definitely look at the words, but we need to look at concepts and definitions and whether those are found in the Bible. And definitely is the concept of same-sex relationships found in the Bible. Yes, that's what we need to talk about. Not whether a certain word or not is there. Because as we look through Scripture, we do find Genesis 19, the Sodom and Gomorrah passage, and and that, if, if all we had there was in the Bible was just that one passage and nothing else, we wouldn't have Leviticus, we didn't have Romans 1, we didn't have 1 Timothy or, or 1 Corinthians 6, then that in, by itself, it would be hard because that's a narrative text. And, it's, and it's, we shouldn't just go to that text alone because that text is pointing to other sins beyond just same-sex relationships. People want to say that that text is only talking about inhospitality. It is showing inhospitality, but it's also more. Or people say, well, it's only talking about gang rape. It is talking about gang rape, but it's also talking about more. It's talking about many other sins, just like Judges 19. If you're familiar with Judges 19, that's a parallel passage with Genesis 19. But instead of trying to rape uh, the guest who were the angels, it's talking about uh, the Levite who was going after his concubine and the, the, they wanted to have sex with the Levite, but instead he gives his concubine and then they have sex with her all night and then she, she dies. And remember that whole passage? He cuts him up into 12 pieces, sends him off. Anyway, I mean, they did all was right in their own eyes anyway. So it's a not, we should not judge our life on judges. Uh, there's very little in the book of Judges that we should ju uh, base our life on other than that what they did was wrong. But 
we find that, let, let's say in that situation, men of Gibeah, what, what they did was that uh, they were only wrong for gang rape and they were not wrong for adultery. I mean, they were guilty of many sins. In the same way, the men of Sodom were guilty of many things. But it's interesting because the main reason why people come off to the wrong interpretation is because oftentimes they're not seeing how the Bible is interconnected. Many times, biblical writers will quote other inspired texts or they will allude to different biblical texts. What do I mean by allude or an allusion? Biblical writers will sometimes word, uh, pull a couple keywords or maybe three or four or even a bunch more keywords. And when they do that, they're referring back to an inspired text. So, for example, Ezekiel in chapter 16, verse 49 says, this was a sinner of your sister Sodom. She was arrogant, overfed, unconcerned, did not help the poor and needy. And people say that looks like inhospitality, which it does. But the following verse, it says, and this is important because people who hold to the revisionist view or to the gay affirming view will not look at the next verse because the next verse kind of gives us some more clarity. And the next verse says, they were haughty and did an abomination before me. That word abomination is very a strong word that we find throughout scripture, but most of the time it's used in the plural, abominations, less it's used in the singular, which is very significant because that narrows the scope of what this word is referring back to. Even more so, or even less so, I mean, uh, is this word coupled with the word did, with the sin that they did an abomination. Whatever sin that, that a person does, well, that's equivalent to that person doing or do, that ha, has, has done an abomination. And when we find that word the verb done or did or committed with the direct object as abomination, we find that that is never referred to rape, gang rape, nor is it ever referred to um, inhospitality, but it is referred to same-sex relationships. So that's a good example of an interconnection where Ezekiel, inspired by God himself to record his truth, was connecting the sin found in Sodom with the sin found in Leviticus, where Leviticus, it stated that the sin is an abomination, and when people commit that, they've committed an abomination. But then we have other passages that point back, particularly in the New Testament, because people say, well, but the Old Testament, we don't follow those things anymore. There's a lot of things in the Old Testament we don't do, right? I mean, how many of you guys like shellfish? Anyone like crab or shrimp, lobster? According to the Bible, according to the Old Testament, that's wrong. How many of you guys like, like pork? Can we get an amen for bacon? Amen. <laughs> Hallelujah for bacon. So bacon is pork, and pork, according to the Old Testament, is unclean. So if you like bacon, 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 if you like bacon, you better know why we're able to eat it. Well, because when we read the whole Bible, we read the whole Bible and we look for the interconnections. We read the Bible canonically. A lot of people say, oh, I read things in context. But it's more than just reading it in context. We need to read it in light of the whole canon. 
Have you heard that word, word before, refer to the Bible? What's the, the canon? What do we call that? I mean, what, what does that mean when we say the canon of Scripture, the canon of the Bible? All 66 inspired books of the Bible, all 66 of them. 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. That makes 66 books. So when we read things canonically, that doesn't mean that I, I just read the book of Romans in light of the rest of the book of Romans, in light of, you know, what Paul wrote before and after. I'm reading Romans in light of Genesis. I'm reading Romans in light of Leviticus. I'm reading Romans in light of Isaiah. Uh, I'm reading, uh, you know, Romans in light of Revelation, in light of the, book of the gospel of Matthew. I'm reading in light of Acts. Because we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Because when you don't, you will come up with the wrong interpretation. Reading the Bible canonically, I say, puts guardrails on your interpretation. And without those guardrails, you will very easily fall off the cliff into false teaching. And so we put those guardrails there. We read the Bible canonically. So we, we go to the New Testament because there's certain things in the Old Testament that we know that they haven't been, we don't just don't follow the Old Testament. When people say, oh, there are things in the Old Testament we don't follow anymore. Well, that's not true. We follow the Old Testament. We just know that there are things that Jesus has fulfilled. Amen? Jesus has not come to abolish the what? The law. He's come to what? Fulfill it. So when people who say, oh, we don't follow certain th things in the Bible, you know what they don't believe? They don't believe in Jesus' words. Jesus never came to abolish or do with, away with law. He came to fulfill it. So you're thinking, what does it have to do with bacon? Let me tell you. Jesus came to fulfill the law. And specifically, he's fulfilled the laws on uncleanness. How many of you guys know Acts chapter 10, where Peter gets a vision and something from heaven is dropping down? Anyone remember what that is? A white sheet. And what's on that sheet? What type of foods? What kind of animals? Unclean. So I always interpret things like in my own context. So when I read that, like, you know, all unclean animals and foods, you know what I read that as? I read that as like a big Chinese buffet. You know what I mean? Like all unclean, <laughs> dropping from heaven, like a big picnic spread, you know, unclean. And the voice from heaven says, take and eat. And Peter's like, no, 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 you know, nothing unclean has touched my lips. So he doesn't like Chinese food. That's okay. I get that. But then anyone remember what the voice from heaven says? Don't call anything unclean that I've made clean. So with that, it's even more clarified that Jesus has fulfilled the unclean laws. So not only can we now eat bacon, hallelujah, but yeah, amen, that should get a big round of applause. We can eat bacon. But you know what else? 
What else is that because the unclean laws have fulfilled, not just the unclean food laws, but the, uh, because Jesus now has torn the veil, and now those of us who are unclean, and if you are Gentile, that means if you are not Jewish, you're Gentile. How many Gentiles in here? I'm Gentile. I am full-blooded Gentile. We've got more Gentiles in here. Come on, raise your hands. We're all Gentiles unless you're Jewish. So you're like, you're not sure, like, I don't know. <laughs> maybe ask mom and dad, I don't know, maybe. My older brother always said that mom and dad picked me up from a, you know, a, a trash dump or something like that. Any older brothers tell, tell you that? Don't believe them. So if you don't know where you came from, that's okay. Just raise your hand anyway. So if you are not Jewish, guess what? You're Gentile. And according to the Old Testament, that means you're unclean. And because we're unclean, that means we can't come into the presence of God. But praise the Lord, because of what Jesus has done, we can now come into the presence of God. That could get, that should get a huge amen. Amen? Amen. So we now can come into the presence of God. So uh, we, we need to realize that, that Jesus, he fulfilled the law. But then how do we know whether some laws haven't been fulfilled? Well, one clue is when the New Testament tells us so. And when we see in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1, there's these lists of sins that both 1 Timothy, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1, they're both a list of sins. We call that a vice list. A vice list. And in this list of sins are, is one compound word. And in this compound word, uh, it's made up of two words. But this compound word, we don't find it elsewhere in the New Testament. And we don't find it elsewhere used by any other, you know, Greek writers that we know of. We don't have any existing ancient documents that have that one word. So the question is, what does that me word mean? Well, that compound word, when we break it apart, you know where we find those two words? In Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13. So here's another huge example of an interconnection. So Paul was pulling back to the Torah, back to Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13, and saying that what is being condemned here, that a man shall not lie with a male as one who lies with a female. It is an abomination. Paul is saying that law still stands today for the, for the redeemed, for the church. But you might think, but you know what? People are, people are born gay. God made them this way. That's just the way they are. And, they, you know, science has even proven that. Well, look at, you know, I mean, even the, the most recent uh, research came out just last month. They're like, they found five additional genetic markers. And yes, that's true. They have. But if you read carefully, you will see that even those five additional genetic markers together constitute a small minority for the causative factor for sexuality. So genetics it's quite certain plays some role, but there's other things. But at the end of the day, as Christians, we need to look to the word of God. Because if we're looking for causes, God talks about causes in the Bible. 
We can't understand human sexuality unless we begin with theological anthropology. Now, I'm throwing some big words out there. You know what human sexuality means. But what about theological anthropology? Anthropology, what does that mean? Study of humanity. Anthropos in Greek means human, man, mankind. Lagos means the word. It means knowledge, truth, study. So there's a study of humanity. Anthropology is a study of humanity. But this discipline, as we know of it today, begins essentially with the presupposition that there is no God, that human beings are just evolved from animals, evolved from, you know, and animals from, uh, you know, invertebrates, inver invertebrates, invertebrates, you know, and, and, and that kind of goes down to, you know, one cell and then a glob. That's kind of the premise that anthropology, the discipline today, is built on. Theological anthropology begins the correct presupposition that we are all created in the image of God, that we are all created by God and therefore we're created in the image of God. And that means that because we're created in the image of God, that's good. However, we can't end there because then the Bible goes on to Genesis 3 where it says we all have a sin nature. When did we begin to have a sin nature? At five? At five months? How about five weeks? No, from birth, from conception, actually. So was that a choice? Did anyone choose to have a sin nature? Did anyone wake up like when you were like two years old and be like, Mommy, I want a sin nature? Anyone do that? No? Was having a sin nature a choice? Yes or no? No. So that does that then make sin right? Yes or no? No. Just because you can be born a certain way does not then make the behavior right. We're all born with a sin nature. So theological anthropology means that we know we're created in the image of God, but we all have a sin nature, not by choice and from the very beginning. But you know, at the end of the day, even though the science does, has not proven that people are born gay. We're still trying to figure that out. It's very complex. And when we look to the word of God, we see that we all are born of this in nature. So simply saying, well, you're going to choose this doesn't make it right. Simply saying that, you know, you can be born a certain way or whatever doesn't make it right. But there's something very, very important that Jesus says that speaks right into this question of whether people are born gay. Jesus, his words are so relevant. Because even though many people think they're born gay, you might think you're born gay, you might think you're born bi, you might whatever. You know what Jesus Christ says? You must be born again. The old is gone, the new has come. In Christ, you are a new creation. So it doesn't matter whether you think you're born an alcoholic. Jesus says you must be born again. It doesn't matter if you think you're born a, a liar or a gossiper. You must be born again. There's nothing more gospel than that. And that message is not just for the gay community. That is a message for the world.
you must be born again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this incredible message that your son Jesus gave to us. That you must be born of water, must be born of spirit, you must be born from above. Lord, we know that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot be born again apart from you, O God. And I pray, Father, even for those in this room who may have been raised in a Christian home, who even go to a great Christian school, Lord, that does not make anyone born again. Being born of Christian parents does not make us born again. Going to a great Christian school like Southwest does not make us born again. Only you, the God of the universe, is able to make us born again. So I pray for that reality for everyone in this room who, is, who have yet to put their faith in Christ. But also for those of us who have put our faith in Christ, O oh God. Help us, Lord, to not live in our old self. But by your grace and with your help, O oh God, help us to live as new creation for the rest of our days. And we ask this in the beautiful, powerful, matchless name of Jesus, the Messiah. And the people of God said, Amen. Thank you for listening in on our Encounter podcast. You can find previous Encounter recordings and who will be coming in future weeks on our Southwest Christian High School webpage, www.swchs.org. Click on Student Life and Encounter. Again, thank you for joining us, and until next time, keep your eyes fixed, not on speakers, teachers, or institutions, but on Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith.